Hi, I'm Tim Root, Head of Industry Relations for Citus AMC. Welcome to our latest installment of On the Hill. Today, we're going to be talking about the COVID-19 induced economic crisis, the federal response to the crisis, the impact on two critical government lending programs, FHA and Ginnie Mae, and ultimately how banks and independent mortgage bankers are navigating this environment. To help me unpack this topic today, it's a good friend of mine, Chris Whalen. Chris is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris is an investment banker, an author, a prolific writer, a contributor, contributing editor to National Mortgage News. Chris tends to focus on topics related to banking, mortgage banking, and fintech. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Tim, great to be here. Thanks, bud. Hey, so let me set the scene for you, Chris. So February of 2020, we're in the best economic environment that probably any of us have had in our lifetime. Fast forward to end of March, we're in the worst economic environment of our lifetime. Now the Fed meets that economic crisis with a very potent response, starting with a fiscal response of $3 trillion of uh, relief and stimulus funding. Um, the monetary response from the Federal Reserve is equally impressive, basically making a market for every financial asset imaginable, notably not MSRs. Um, hmm. The um, mortgage, so you have the federal response, then you've got the mortgage performance. You look at, I guess it's the highest double the rate of the mortgage delinquencies from the peak of the financial crisis, millions of borrowers in forbearance. Um, at the same time, you've got originators celebrating record high origination volumes and margins, but bemoaning the financial obligations imposed on them by the CARES Act. So obviously you've written a lot about this and certainly have been as thoughtful as anybody could be about this. What's your take? What do you think we should know? Well, you've laid it out very nicely, Tim. The Fed responded in uh, the end of March because there was a very sudden realization that there was a problem with COVID. It had been out there even at the end of the year uh, in 2019, especially in the Asian meds, but it all coalesced in March. That's when everybody focused on it. And the markets uh, had a very tough couple of weeks. The Fed response was big, but also the response was very close to causing certain firms to fail because when they push rates down, they, in a short-term sense, increased the cost of financing for a lot of lenders. They basically had to give all of their cash to the banks and the broker-dealers that financed their production. And a lot of them came very close to failing. So the Fed since then has moderated a little bit their purchases, but clearly the low rate environment is driving volumes. And that huge uptick, probably 100% or more year over year for many firms, has enabled them through refinancing, through all sorts of activity to generate so much liquidity in the short term that we are able to essentially finance the COVID response. What's so interesting is that a number of firms that have filed to go public since Rocket Mortgage went out in August, when you look at their financials, you notice that they're not pulling on their warehouse lines very much. Utilization of bank lines by independent mortgage banks is actually quite low. Why? Because they have all this float from refinancing. Um, there's a vast amount of refinancing volumes today. So right now, everything's okay, and the industry is borrowing from Peter to pay Paul in terms of taking care of COVID. But I think, I hope uh, Congress at some point is going to go back and make the industry whole at least. They shouldn't take a loss 
for helping consumers on a government-mandated program like this. And the states, too. They've all got mandates out there, as you know, Tim. Um, but I think, you know, right now, we'll take it. You know, it's a good year. Uh, spread snugged up a little bit in the third quarter, but the volume increases made up for it. So it's a strange year. It's both really bad and really good at the same time. Yeah, we got introduced to the new um, uh, concept or a new letter in the recovery alphabet of a K uh, recovery. That's right. For those who could work That's from right. home and had financial assets are obviously performing fairly well, whereas folks who you know are in service industries, hospitality, lack financial or liquid assets are obviously still struggling. That's what you, right. What do you see on the other side of this, though? I mean, let's just fast forward to next year. So you can imagine that interest rates, even if they stay the same, refinance volume is going to taper off, um, maybe measurably, maybe not. If they go up, it'll, of course, be measurable. The purchase market is red hot, but not hot enough to cover the gap uh, left by or the hole left by a, a shrinking refinance market. But to your, mm -hmm. to your point, you've... Bankers, people with servicing have gotten away with the advanced requirements of the CARES Act because, again, of the volume on the origination side and the payoffs, um, the, the float on the payoffs that can, they can use to advance. What happens when you don't have the origination volume and the revenue from the origination side? You don't have the float income, but you still have the obligations on the servicing side for the advances. And then now Q2, Q3, at the end of these forbearance periods, you're going to be saddled with loss mitigation and default management. No, that's that's exactly right, Tim. And you know, at the moment, um, the the production volumes cover a lot of sins, as I said. And for the most efficient lenders, the top five or six, who are able to essentially replace the assets that are prepaying this month with new production or more, um, they're fine. But all of the passive vehicles out there, the REITs and others that were buying servicing and buying even mortgage-backed securities today, they're facing this continuing onslaught of prepayments. And so it's going to be tough for them to stay in. I mean, think of it this way, whether you're talking about residential mortgage-backed securities or commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, every time there's a default on a Freddie Mac uh, multifamily deal, for example, they give you back par, but you pay 109 for that security. So, you know, the, the investors are actually experiencing uh, negative returns on a lot of these securities. And the only place to hide, frankly, is in servicing assets if you're a good lender. That's yep. the necessary condition. If you're not, you might as well sell your servicing to somebody who is, because at least you can monetize the relationship, which is probably the most valuable part of that asset today, not the cash flow. It's the ability to call that guy on the phone and refi him. And to your point about you know the difficulty with COVID, Think about how many loans are going to come out of COVID forbearance successfully, get back on track, hopefully. And then in a, you know, six months or so, they're going to refi, if not sooner. So I think there is more volume out there than people suspect for next year. I'm actually kind of bullish about next year. And I know our friends at Mortgage Bankers, I know the guys at Fannie and Freddie are really good when they put their projections out, but I think they're too conservative. I don't think they realize that when the Fed sees weak unemployment numbers later this year, and I think they will, they're going to step on the gas again. And today people are selling their production in the two and a half or two coupon MBSs. By next year, we're going to have one and a half. And yeah. so, you know, it'll happen all over again. I hope you're right. I mean, look, a lot of these companies that are going public. Any of the companies going public have to have assets. 
and the assets That's are right. the MSR value. The MSR values are, are historic lows, of course, because of the rapid prepayment speeds. Now that's, that's afforded them the ability to go out and lever those assets more than they had historically because you know, the lenders on, the, on these assets are thinking, well, heck, they're, they're not gonna mark them any lower. There's really no risk of a markdown, a liquidity event there. There's only up to go. But the challenge mm -hmm. might be in the event that, uh, I hope you're right, that volumes continue to maintain, um, origination volumes. But if they don't, coming into you know, the Q2, Q3 next year, if you have a real drop off in origination volumes, then you know, historically what the bankers do is they liquidate the assets to replace the, as a macro hedge to a slower origination volume. And the public company, right. is that gonna be an issue or do you think that's gonna be a non-event? Look, I, I think it will be an issue. You know, you summarized it very nicely. Um, it, it, there is cost out there, particularly in government uh, servicing. I think also the traditional concern in conventionals about potential uh, repurchase claims is, you know, kind of hanging over everybody's head. They don't know how this whole thing is going to play out in detail. So there's different concerns. I mean, if you look at the world um, that I work with, uh, my friends at JVB, and in terms of financing, uh, so the entire program's government loans today. Now, six months ago, you would have probably seen 30 40% conventionals in there, but nobody wants to see conventionals in a repo, and nobody wants to see them sitting on a warehouse line right now. So if, if you're moving your loans right today, Tim, you're looking to keep your turnover very high, you want to move those pools out once, twice a week, all right? And then at the same time, your bank is telling you they don't want to see those loans sitting there for days. They want them off in four or five days. So the industry is hyper-efficient right now. They're turning assets as quick as they can because the banks didn't keep up with financing. They really couldn't one-for-one one keep up with the volume increase this year. Uh, they have other problems. And, uh, you know, there's other marginal sources of financing, but the industry has had to focus both on a people shortage and a funding shortage at a time when there's amazing demand, right? So what that means is quality is good. They're not doing the tough loans. They're doing the easy loans because they want them to turn and get out, you know, pool them and assign the trade, move on, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, the, the industry has picked up operating efficiency in the last 12 months. That's amazing. People, well, systems, you know, amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and these have been a long time coming for this industry. I mean, it's a little bit of, you know, some of it's thought latency, e-mortgage, e-closings. We've been talking about them for 20 years, and the technology really hasn't needed to oh, advance yeah. further. I mean, I was reading Aquin's earnings uh, this morning going through uh, their tech, and they're all home. It's a fairly big book, $200 billion. And they're growing lending and they're doing this and they're doing that. And all their people are working from home. It's amazing. And all the other firms are the same way. Yeah. Well, it's saving grace too on the performance side of this is, you know, you've got record equity levels. You've got the most stringently underwritten book of business over the last decade that probably most of us yes. have known. So people yeah, will have a way out um, in the event that they find themselves unable to make their payments HPI and you know, obviously home equity should be a saving grace and give us a softer landing, of course, much softer than we had in the financial crisis. Well, no, that's true. For, from a note holder perspective, you, you're not that worried because loss given default for Bank One to Forbes is negative. Uh, 
you know, the rest of the market, it's, it's much lower than it was during the financial crisis. It's not even close because of prices, right? You can easily sell the asset. You're not seeing a lot of defaults because they just sell the house. Um, pay off the mortgage, give the, the homeowner the net amount, and off they go, right? In a lot of cases, that's a good outcome. Let's say they've lost their job during the you know, COVID, and they may have to make a career change, or they worked for an airline, or whatever it is, right? Uh, the fact that those prices are still so strong, Tim, is huge. Now, the households are going through hell. They're getting beat up. We don't see that as much because, you know, as I said, the defaults are low, and the post-default uh, recovery rates are amazing in the major MSAs. So, you know, it, it's a strange, it is the K-shaped recession. It's hitting people uh, with the least means, households with the lowest income, and they don't tend to be big users of credit. So from a bank perspective, even credit cards, autos, you know, autos are rocking. Look, look at used car prices. And again, that's why loss rates for autos, if they default, are low. They repossess the car and they sell it. Um, so the markets, thank God, are still working. Um, but I think the politicians have to be very careful not to mess with the resolution process for a lot of these markets, whether it's mortgages or autos or everything, because you don't want these markets to get, as they are now, accumulating problems that they have to fix. Yeah. You know, there's, they, they will put as much resource as they can up against it. But if you, you know, for example, decide to extend forbearance on COVID loans for another six months, which could happen um, depending on who wins the White House, uh, that could be an enormous cost to the industry. And I think policymakers have to start thinking about this really carefully. Because, you know, for example, look at people who do foreclosures and resolutions now. They're out of work. They're all looking for something else to do right now. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be helping consumers, but I am saying that if you you know, let defaults and real problems accumulate in the system, it'll take a while to fix it, Tim, as you yeah. know very well. You guys are, are in the thick of things, both on the commercial side and the resi side. So, well, I uh, share your concern there. I mean, the idea of a zombie housing market that's you know, created by extending and pretending. Again, to your point, you shouldn't be uncharitable. God knows nobody wants to be uncharitable and be sympathetic. But at the same time, you know, we've seen through the financial crisis that when you extend and pretend, you ultimately hurt the entire market, not just the, even the investor, but that entire real estate market. Look at New Jersey, um, New York, for example. You're working through foreclosures from five, six, seven years ago. Um, and it's had a negative oh, yeah. impact on those housing markets, the values in those markets. So you certainly need to clear those markets, but you need to do it in a way that's somewhat com obviously compassionate and creates a glide path for the um, household to move to more suitable, more um, in balance, uh, financially speaking, um, dwelling. Oh, definitely. You know, here in the New York City area, um, Connecticut, New Jersey, you still have large swaths of housing, in some cases, high-end homes, well above the conforming limit that are underwater. And so you as a lender, I mean, what do you do? You foreclose on it and take the house? No. You know, the, the, these are situations that are screaming for modifications and everything else, but because they're higher income homeowners, nobody cares. You know, they're not popular with the, uh, the policymakers. But, you know, the fact that the Fed didn't support the uh, jumbo market and still hasn't, I thought was really bizarre because uh, that ultimately is a bank market. 
That's how the banks price their production. So when the Fed refused to support that market, the banks stopped buying third-party correspondent, Tim. You know, the one is connected with the other. If, if Jay Powell would get up tomorrow and say, hey, you know, if things get dicey, we'll look at buying AAA uh, jumbo mortgage deals, just the front piece, right? That would fix everything. Yeah. But they haven't done that. So I, I worry sometimes that the approach, this massive approach that we've seen from various agencies, the Fed, everybody else, right, um, is kind of a checkerboard. Sometimes they hit it and sometimes they don't. Um, and it's, it's fascinating the way it happens. I'll give you another example. Treasury now is accumulating cash. Treasury has almost $2 trillion in cash sitting at the Fed, and they're going to keep raising cash till the end of the year. They'll have $3 trillion. Now, if Congress doesn't pass new legislation to spend money, between January and July, they have to get rid of that money because in July they go back to the old statute, which is $130 billion for cash management, right, for, for the debt ceiling. Imagine if Treasury has to give that money back. Imagine if, for example, the Dems don't have more than 51, 52 seats in the Senate, and the Senate Democrats, who don't particularly care for the left wing of their party, uh, say, no, we'll, we'll spend a trillion instead of three, right? Yeah. That'll be quite an interesting thing, because the Treasury would have to stop issuing debt. They'd just redeem. And imagine that we'd have no collateral. We'd have no coupons to borrow. Wouldn't That's that be great? Mind warping uh, discussions, too, if you ever think about the... Oh circular aspect of the treasury issuing securities, the Fed buying the securities, then treasury pays them the interest on it, but the Fed can't hold the actual profits or revenue from it, so it gives it back to the treasury department. Well, and look, the, the Fed and the treasury are alter egos, Tim. They are one and the same. What's an asset for one is a liability for the other. It's uh, one of the great acts of leisure to me never. Well, really Chris, is. hey, look, since we're not in the same room together, I think we can talk politics. Yes. Okay? Um, so if you're looking at from housing and a mortgage perspective, you know, juxtaposing a, a second Trump term to a Biden term, you can imagine, you know, Trump is going to be continuing on the, the policies that they have. Less regulation, kinder, gentler supervision, de-risking government lending programs, um, better capitalizing those government programs to protect taxpayers, juxtaposed to the Biden side where it looks to be you know, redo of the enforcement regime from the Biden administration, which is concerning. I remember many customers telling me that they would wake up every day in fear of their own government. Uh, there are doing some things that I think are really wonderful and that we need to tackle, which is how do you find a way to build more affordable housing? They have an ambitious plan, the unity plan, to build one and a half to two billion um, more units of affordable housing, more million units of affordable housing, which is mm. great. But some of the things that worry me at when you have a frothy housing market and their focus is on the wealth creation opportunity of home ownership, which I've long believed in, maybe not today, given how frothy the markets are, and getting finding ways of taking down the economic and credit barriers to home ownership for low to moderate income, minority, cash-strapped um, borrowers. What's your take on uh, those two parallels? Well, I think you're right. If, if President Trump wins and even if he loses, but the Republicans manage to hold on to a majority in the Senate, I don't think you would see radical change. You know, there will be certainly a change in terms of agency heads and the focus and everything else. But I, I think that, you know, the industry has done a lot of work 
to try and address some of the issues after the crisis and the, the national mortgage settlement. So I think they're in pretty good shape as far as that goes. The, the whole thing with affordable housing, Tim, is so difficult because the, you know, we pretend that inflation in this country is low. But when you look at housing assets, they've been going straight up for years. And they're going up much higher than most measures of inflation, much faster. So, you know, by definition, even going back to the 60s and the 70s, you had to have public support for affordable housing. It just wouldn't work otherwise because the land was too expensive. The zoning, everything was against you in terms of, you know, building something here in the New York area, for example, anywhere in New York City including Staten Island, okay? It's just not going to work because it's too expensive, the labor, everything. So, you know, if the Fed is using housing as their chief monetary policy tool, and if that turns, you know, in turn makes housing assets go up in price faster than incomes, obviously, right? Then you have a problem because you're basically pricing everybody out of the housing market. And you're basically saying to low-income households, you can't live in major metropolitan areas. You've got to go live out in the country where it's cheap. That's terrible, but that's the system we have because, you know, look at California, the uh, most progressive state in the country and the most hostile state to affordable housing. They just will not do it, even in the valley, you know, much less anywhere close to the water. So this is an endemic problem, Tim. It really is. And I don't know how you fix it because the system, particularly the Fed and Treasury, don't want to have a period of deflation. You know, when did low-income home, homeowners or households, young families, get a chance to buy a cheap house after a foreclosure? So if the progressives are trying to prevent foreclosure and pander to consumers that way, then consumers will never buy a cheap house, ever. They never get that opportunity. And that, to me, is a shame. You know, you don't get a big bounce if you don't have a sell-off. You don't get a big uptick in employment or business activity if you don't allow a recession. And that's, you know, we've been running away from recessions really even before 2008, I think. You can go back to 9-11 and some of the things that happened at the turn of the century. And policymakers have just been unwilling to take the pain of a really nasty recession, like what you and I lived through when we were kids. So, you know, unfortunately, the flip side of that is prices never go down. And I yeah. think that's un unfortunate. I think you're right. I mean, look, historically, what you would find, there's three ways out of a credit bubble. You can either default your way out, and we don't have the stomach to default consumers or businesses in mass. You can grow your way out. Well, we're doing a pretty darn bad job of that, obviously, in this economic crisis, or you inflate your way out, which is, you know, the go-to move for the, at least the last 20 years. Right? Once, once the FOMC decided that Fed funds was a policy tool instead of a market price, um, we had a problem because they just kept pushing it down and down. That's what we're doing now. I guarantee when the unemployment numbers come out in November, December, and they're bad because we didn't have any more juice in the system, um, especially on the public sector side. Private sector, I think, is actually going to bounce very nicely. But the public sector side is going to be just gruesome because – you know, here in New York, uh, Bill de Blasio and his mismanagement, he, he grew headcount 20% since he first became mayor. Uh, we're missing half a million people. And he refuses to do the obvious, which is to tell the MTA to start winding things down. Uh, we're running empty trains and buses around the city. So um, it's going to be really hard on the blue states, the major metros, 
and you know Illinois, New York, California are going to go through a wrenching process, and they're all Democrats. There are almost no Republicans in the conversation in New York, um, and same thing with New Jersey. So they'll they'll have to deal with it. You know, and you were talking before about real estate here. It's been nice to get some interest uh, in the suburban uh, assets. They were you know very weak for a long time, but at the same time, you know we have a lot of lenders who just will not do business here anymore. And I think that when you look at multifamily and the rent control laws that the Democrats put in place last year, oh my God, you, you couldn't imagine a, a more perfect storm to come and hurt this asset class because a lot of these buildings, especially in Queens, you know, older kind of mid-sized apartment buildings, they're unfinanceable now. A bank won't touch them. So if you have the mortgage and you're the bank, you'll probably roll it. But you know that that asset can't recover its costs anymore because of the rent control law. Right. And that's a, that's a recipe for disaster. We're going to be back in the 70s and early 80s, which is when I first came back to New York from Washington, interestingly enough. So I, I've seen this movie before. You know, yeah. we've been living in Manhattan the whole time, by the way. It, it, it's fascinating. Um, it really is. The city's come back a bit. But, you know, there's big chunks of this economy that are just not here. Um, well, it's going to be know. interesting, obviously. Um, the election is, is critical on so many levels, critically um, important, on, well, as I just said, on many levels. And we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Obviously, the country is very resilient, but I don't know, you know, how much more durable it needs to be to get through some, you know, basically, the, the crisis that we have tearing the country apart. So hopefully, whatever happens, I was hoping for an Oprah Winfrey Tom Hanks ticket to somehow bail us out and give us some happy solution. Happy. But that doesn't seem to be on the cards. So we're just going to have to ride the two horses we've got and hope for the best. Look, the best thing that can happen to Republicans is for uh, Trump to run a, a decent race but lose. Uh, because if the Democrats are in power, there's a good handful of Southern Democrats and a couple of others who are not going to like what they hear coming from the left wing of the party. And I think it may speed a evolution. You may even see a couple of senators change parties if things get too ugly. Um, because, you know, the way people like Dianne Feinstein and some of these other uh, kind of more traditional Democrats, if you will, have been uh, getting attacked recently, I, I don't think it's going to make them, you know, want to stay. And the Republicans will be in a very, you know, 20 senators will be able to control the whole body. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see who's in that middle coalition and who's, who's leading it. Because it could happen. It's red and blue in play right now. Oh, red, blue, and I don't know what other color we could have. Maybe green. What do you get if you put red and blue together? You get green. There you go. There you go. I love it. Chris, hey, thanks so much for your time, brother. Always wonderful. Hey, uh, my pleasure. Let's, let's be optimistic. All right. We'll do, buddy. Be good. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.